Hello there and welcome to Thursday's show. Hope you've had a good day. I'm sure you're warm wherever you are, although it's going to change. Thunderstorms coming in across the UK this evening, tomorrow. Anywho, it is uh, the 23rd of June 2022. That's a red letter day in history. Six years ago today, the United Kingdom, the electorate voted to leave the European Union. Six years, eh? Six years. Let's do the programmes then. Thanks again for finding me. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. The Irish freelance journalist Garrodo Colmoyne will be on the program a bit later on. He's based in Paris. He's a top man. Much to uh, chew over with uh, Garrodo. Don't miss him a bit later on in the show. Before that, though, Diana Hamill-Page will be on with me. I'm really looking forward to chatting with Diana. I learned about her through the Daily Mail, the Express. In fact, uh, pretty much everybody picked up her story. Diana runs an organisation called the Wild Harvest School. She teaches people to become fully self-reliant. Diana spent years raising her children in a caravan in nature, teaching them how to survive, how to become fully reliant in the event they might have to in the future. She's a fascinating lady. Diana Hamill-Page joins the programme this hour. So it's a good old show then this Thursday. Busy old show as well. You can join in, of course, via the website richieallen.co.uk. Comment life. Leave me a comment. Have a chat with me. Talk to me. Speak to me. Opine for me. Six years ago, eh? The country voted to leave the European Union and the country still hasn't. Not by a long chalk. Don't that it could be argued, you see. I remembered just in the nick of time. <laughs> I remembered to swallow your own guff. Swallow your own guff, Richie. If it's good for the goose, yes, it could be argued. The country hasn't properly left. Just look at the Northern Ireland Protocol nonsense. And you know there was a German minister on BBC Radio 4 this morning threatening a trade war an EU trade war with the UK. Uh, Listeners who know me long enough will remember that back in 2016, when the vote came in, I said that if any government was serious about leaving and honouring the vote of the British people, because the people voted to leave, the government would have triggered Article 50 immediately. Article 50, of course, is meant to be triggered when a country has... uh, decided to leave the European Union. What does it mean? Well, it means that there is a two-year grace period thereafter to give the exiting country and the European Union a chance to tidy up all of its affairs. But Of course, the UK didn't trigger Article 50 for another couple of years. Nonsense. I said back then if the government was serious about honouring the decision of the people, it would have exited immediately no Article 50, it would have said to the European Union, your block of countries sells more to the UK than we sell to you. So don't be making any threats about a trade war. We're happy for the status quo to continue. We're happy for people from the European Union to continue to come to the UK to visit, 
to spend here time here on holidays, uh, to own properties here. We're happy for all of that to continue. We'll reciprocate all of that, but we won't be obeying your rules anymore on anything that we choose not to obey them on. And we will be doing trade deals with whomever we want in the future. It was fairly simple. You might say nothing is ever as simple as that, but it really could have been. The European Union has far more to lose than the UK in any trade war. But I'm not getting into that now. Talked yesterday about agitate, 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 fear, 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 fear. You may have heard today that hundreds of British airway workers, British Airways workers at Heathrow Airport have voted to go on strike over pay. And they plan to strike at peak holiday time when people are turning up to Heathrow to board a plane for the sun. This is all driving people mad this year. Just need to listen to the phone-in shows on the stations around the country. So Unite and GMB union members, who are mostly check-in staff, well, they backed industrial action today. 700 workers will strike during the summer holidays at Heathrow. It's going to be chaos. It's going to be chaos anyway. They will announce the strikes in the coming days. More bad news. Yes. Now, while prepping this programme this afternoon, around about 3.50pm, that's UK time, about an hour ago, uh, I heard this on Sky News. You won't believe your ears. Simon, thanks very much indeed. Now, the World Health Organisation has convened an emergency meeting to decide whether to declare monkeypox an emergency of international concern. That's its highest form of alert. You got that right. The World Health Organisation meeting today to decide whether to declare monkeypox an emergency incident of concern. Yeah, touched on this yesterday. Well, Sky's Sabah Chowdhury is here for us. So uh, this feels like quite an important moment. You think? Good afternoon, Anna. Yeah, it absolutely is. So this is the first time that the World Health Organization have met to discuss the severity uh, of monkeypox, monkeypox and whether it should be considered uh, a global health emergency, what they call uh, an emergency of international concern. Uh, now, what this means in practice is that if it does indeed get this classification, which we don't yet know, the meeting has been ongoing this afternoon, uh, but it means that monkeypox will be considered as serious as polio. As polio? Ebola. What? COVID-19. Need I say more? Uh, well, you need to say a bit more, yeah, to back that up. So they will declare monkeypox to be as serious as Ebola? You've got to be kidding me. Um, now, we are unlikely to get details today. Uh, most probably tomorrow we will have a greater understanding uh, when a report will be uh, released. Um, and, you know, it is a closed meeting, so we will have to just sort of wait and see. But what we do know about monkeypox uh, is that it is a disease uh, that has come from uh, a virus, from close contact uh, amongst people, respiratory uh, droplets, uh, and also contaminated uh, materials. Now, the fatality rate currently stands at between 3 to 6%. Uh nonsense. Nonsense. It doesn't stand at between 3 to 6%. This is nonsense. I'll explain why in a minute. This is dreadful journalism, this. Uh, and that's what it is, as I say, at the moment, uh, and that might change uh, if monkeypox continues to spread. Now, in the UK currently, we have 793 cases recorded. Uh, Out of a population of over 67 million. 
uh, of monkeypox, uh, and that's according to the WHO. Uh, and just yesterday, health officials uh, announced that those that are considered most high risk uh, will be uh, offered a vaccination for monkeypox. So that's gay and bisexual men, and, and more broadly speaking, men who have sex uh, with men. So that will be on offer uh, to them to help curb the spread uh, of this outbreak. Now, as I said earlier, uh, we don't yet know uh, further details, but tomorrow will be the day we will find out just how seriously we need to be taking this disease. Very interesting. Sabah, thanks very much indeed. We're going to learn from the World Health Organization tomorrow just how seriously we should be taking this disease. What did they call it again? An emergency what? Simon, thanks very much indeed. Now, the World Health Organization has convened an emergency meeting to decide whether to declare monkeypox an emergency of international concern. Right, emergency of international concern. That's the one. She said 3 to 6% Sabbath Chowdhury. Mortality rate. That's a lie. And it wasn't corrected by Sky. The World Health Organization says that the strain currently doing the rounds in the UK has a mortality rate of less than 1%. The World Health Organization has also said that human-to-human -human transmission is very limited. In fact, right up until today, the World Health Organization has been saying that monkeypox isn't really that serious. So why the change in tune? I'll tell you why. And I said it yesterday. This is my opinion. There's no specific treatment for monkeypox, but... The smallpox vaccine has been found to be very effective in preventing monkeypox. That's what they say, the World Health Organization. The smallpox vaccine is very useful in dealing with monkeypox. And I talked about this yesterday. Uh, it was announced by the United States government that it has billions of uh, vaccines for smallpox stockpiled that are useless because smallpox has pretty much been eradicated everywhere. Problem, reaction, solution. Maybe, I don't know. It's worth pointing out. It's open tyranny now, if I'm right. If they are inventing crises to empty out warehouses of vaccines that are useless, well then it's open tyranny. Can I prove any of that? No, I can't. But uh, it's worth exploring further, I think. This is uh, Thursday's Richie Allen show. Uh, the Navy in the United States, in the Navy, they've released a video on pronouns for enlisted men and women in the Navy. If you're in the Navy, you need to know about pronouns. This is crazy stuff. Have a listen. I've chopped up a couple of segments of the pronouns video. My name is Johnny and I use he, him pronouns. Hi, and I'm Conchi and I use she, her pronouns. Johnny and Conchi, he, him, she, her. And we're here to talk about pronouns. What is a pronoun? pronoun is how we identify ourselves apart from our name and it's also how people refer to us in conversations. Using the right pronouns is a really simple way to affirm someone's identity. To affirm someone's identity you need to be thinking about affirming someone's identity by using the correct pronouns. It is a signal of acceptance and respect. If it's a signal of acceptance and respect how do we go about creating a safe space for everybody that's a safe space. It's a good question. A really good way to do that is to use inclusive language. Inclusive language, right? Like? Instead of saying something like, hey, guys, you can say, hey, everyone, or hey, team. But what if you're in a room full of men? Why wouldn't you say, hey, guys, anyway? Yeah, and now that you say that, another way that we could show that we're allies and that we accept everybody is 
to maybe include our pronouns in our emails or... Include the pronouns in your... I love this. I love this thing about allies. We saw this in Ireland last week. LGBT Dublin or Dublin Pride um, said that basically Ireland is a place where the vast majority of people are either gay, lesbian, bisexual and trans or they are allies of LGBT people. What does that mean? Allies. I'm not an ally of anybody. I'm not an ally to gay people or lesbian people, or trans people, or straight people for that matter, or anybody else. Where's that language coming from? Allies, she says. Yeah, and now that you say that, another way that we could show that we're allies and that we accept everybody is to maybe include our pronouns in our emails, or like we just did, introduce ourselves using our pronouns. But what about the person who doesn't want to refer to the bloke with the penis like blokes have? who says that he's a woman, what about that person's rights to say, it's pretty obvious to me that this is a bloke. Therefore, I can't in good conscience because it's farcical really for me to be calling, to be referring to him as her or even they, which is a term for plural, of course. It's the plural. You you know, what about that person's right not to have to do that? But what would I do if I uh, misgender someone? I think the first thing to recognize is that it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world if you misgender someone now. You correct yourself and move on, or you accept the correction and move on. The most important thing I can tell you is do not put the burden of making you feel good about your mistake on the person that you just misgendered. All right, don't put the burden on the misgendered person on making you feel good because you made the mistake. Oh, thank you for telling me that. Yeah, and another tip uh, for you to remember their... uh, pronoun next time it's in your mind kind of go through a progression of three good things about the person wow to remember the pronoun next time the correct one put into your mind three good things about that i wonder how much the u.s navy spent on that garbage telling people to be inclusive and to use the preferred pronouns of people Mad stuff. It's 14 and a half minutes past the hour. Bit of light relief, maybe. This is serious, though. Thanks to my pal Jonathan in Ireland. Jonathan, I got this just before coming on air, and I just about had time to chop it up a little bit. You know that Ireland is doing more than its fair share of um, in terms of taking in refugees from Ukraine, right? Nothing wrong with this now. Ukraine is at war. Russia invaded Ukraine. People have been displaced. Decent people, I think you're decent, I'm decent, would say, you've got to do your bit. It's the I'm not a Christian, but it's the Christian thing to do. It's the decent thing to do. However, yesterday in the Irish Parliament, the Irish Dáil, the Dáil, D-A-Fada-I-L, in the Parliament, A woman whose name I can't remember, but it doesn't matter for the sake of the story. An Irish politician, an elected member of parliament, a TD, she broached the subject of maybe Ireland doesn't have the capacity to take in 30,000 plus Ukrainian refugees because of the state of finance in the country, because of the state of the Irish finances. The fact that Irish people are waiting 12 to 20 years for an affordable home to rent hospital waiting lists are two, three years backlogged for serious procedures. This is not conjecture, this is all true. So this woman said, what's going on? We, we need to be able to satisfy the demand 
of Irish people for vital services. Now, she was basically likened to a racist in the Irish Parliament for saying something that I think is fairly tame and fairly reasonable. I'm not saying I agree. I don't live in Ireland. I don't know. I do know the statistics when it comes to house waiting list um, times and, and, and what's not. Right. But anyway, today on the Claire Byrne show, that's on RTE radio, I think, Matty McGrath, love these names, Matty. Matty is an independent member of parliament from Tipperary, I believe. And Paul McAuliffe is a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Fáil TD. I think he's in Dublin. Now, Matty McGrath came on. I'm not going to play the first clip because Matty said pretty much what the female TD said yesterday. He said, Irish people are concerned about taking in so many uh, refugees. It's not that they're heartless, but things are so bad in Ireland at the moment, they're concerned about what it will mean for their own prospects. That's what Matty said. We'll hear from Matty in a moment now, but that's what he said. Then the presenter introduced Paul McAuliffe from Dublin, the Fianna Fáil. Uh, Fianna Fáil is in government with Fine Gael. So this guy is a government politician. What do you say to all of that? Because it probably does reflect how a certain cohort of people in Ireland feel about this, that we'll do our best, but really are we doing our best to the detriment of, of the services that we can provide here, both to the Ukrainian people and other asylum seekers who are coming to Ireland and to the people who live here? She summed up Matty McGrath's position, yeah. Brilliant, right? People are worried, can we do this? Can we do that for for these people? Uh, How is it going to impact on us? Listen to the government politician. Well, look, uh, Claire. I suppose uh, Ireland is one of the few European countries where the issue of immigration is not used as a political football. And I'm really proud of that. Um, and, and I think it's important that when we discuss this issue, we do exactly the opposite of, 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 of what you're referencing there is that we don't play into uh, the hands of people that might have views that could be could be could be described as we don't play into the hands of people who might have views the opposite of, 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 of what you're listen to the language you're referencing there is that we don't play into uh, the hands of people that might have views that could be could be could be described uh, as racist or could that could be used by the by the by the far right well, well that's nonsense and she should stop him there and say stop waffling about people who might have views that are far right. People in the country are going to the surgeries of Matty McGrath and others and they're saying, we're Ireland, we like, to do, we like to do our bit in terms of the refugee crisis internationally, but we're screwed here. There is a cost of living crisis. Energy prices have gone through the roof. We can't get housing. We can't get access to proper health care or the, the sort of health care that we used to be able to access. Is it a good thing to be taking so many refugees? Should it be capped? This guy brings in the far right. And of course, this is the binary choice tactic. You know, making everything, reducing it to a few simple absolutes. Like, agree with the refugee intake good person, question it, you're obviously a racist. That's where he's going. And I'm not suggesting that Carol Nolan or, or the Matty McGrath were doing that. But the difficulty... you've just... That's exactly what you've just done. The difficulty is, is that once you talk about... Um, limits. There's a hypocrisy there. Matty's saying we want to uh, look after people well who are travelling up to a point and after, after that those people can find a home somewhere else. Mm -hmm. He's not said that at all. He, he's not said that and the Irish people have not said that. They've said, look at it economically. What can we afford to do? 
do that much up to that red line and then say, right, we've done that, that's all we can do. And let other European Union countries take up the slack, basically. They can, they can find protection and space and safety somewhere else. Can I ask you this, though? Darrell O'Brien's response yesterday, where he was jabbing his finger at Carol Nolan and talking about social cohesion, does that pe- tell people, the people that she represents, that you're not allowed to discuss this? No, and I think we should be allowed to discuss, discuss this issue because I think the more we discuss it, the more we can communicate to people why we're making the decisions that, that we are. Uh, and it's really important. Irish people have been incredibly welcoming both to um, to the Ukrainian refugees but to o- other other groups who've, who've migrated into Ireland. They've been hugely positive to our community and they've really contributed. So I think that's where we need, that's where we need to focus on. Of course there are resource issues, of course there are demands on the state as a result of doing that. But my question, but but watch. You see, she should jump in then. So he's waffled on again about how Ireland is welcoming to the Ukrainians and they're nice people. And then he says, of course there are resource issues. Of course she should jump on him. She should jump on him and say, right, stop it right there, Mister McAuliffe. So, so the, so they have a point then. These people who are worried about resource issues, you're basically acknowledging that they're right. That you can only do so much. That there must be a cutoff point. There must be a point where you say the influx of refugees is negatively impacting on the Irish people. That's the cutoff point. Their access to healthcare, their access to schools, their access to uh, jobs, of course, and their access to uh, um, housing. But she doesn't. She lets them off alone. To Matty and to others is, what's the alternative? What happens when we reach that cap? Do we leave Ukrainian refugees fleeing a war in, in, in refugee camps in Poland? No, you're not, you're numpty. No, we, we've done as much as we can do. You tell your European Union paymasters, your puppet masters, this is all we can do. No more. And whether that's 4,000 or 6,000, that's what we have. We can cover that just about, by the way. And you, you're going to have to find some place for other people fleeing Ukraine to go. That's fairly common sense. To me, that sounds like a good compromise. It's the last thing. It's the furthest thing from racism that you could possibly get. Or xenophobia, I should say. Or nimbyism. Right, we can do this much. Can't do all of that, though. Because people are going hungry in this country. Is that, is that the answer? Matty? I said that we... So she lets Matty come back in after ages, right? We cut our cloth according to measure. We do our best. And if we can take more than the cap of rice at 25, 30,000, yes, if we can look after them adequately. With, but with what, about the, pa- what about the parts of the so, cloth, Matty, that I you cut away? You. But what, what about you. the parts of the cloth that you cut away, Matty? I didn't interrupt you. I'm just well, saying that... People are allowed to interrupt each other, in fairness. Oh, thanks for that, I'll be, I'll be fine, so... Did you hear the presenter? It's a debate. People are allowed to interrupt each other, in fairness. How much is RTE paying that clown, that cretin? Her job is to say to Paul McAuliffe, shut up. You've had a good say there. Shut up and let Matty McGrath finish his train of thought. You'll be able to come back in in a moment. How many times have you heard me do that over the years? You've had your say. Let him have his say now. Garbage on RTE, the, the, the national broadcaster. I reckon they're probably paying her two to three hundred thousand euro. 
Absolute nonsense. We leave that one there. 24 minutes past the hour. Uh, this is Thursday's Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live from BBG Towers. You can join in via the website richieallen.co.uk. It's comment live at the top of the page. I love hearing from you. Isn't it Scorchio today? But as I said, the thunderstorms are coming in. The grass, the lawns are thirsting for a bit of water. I've used my hose. There's no hose pipe bands yet. They haven't introduced a hose pipe ban yet. So I've been out uh, once this I went out once, or was it twice this week, after the show, and I turned on the hose pipe. So I did. Uh, good evening to Ardle, who says, this seems to be some World Economic Forum agenda, he says. The CEO of the company I work for was proudly pictured shaking the hand of Klaus Schwab at Davos. And a few weeks later, we, at our company, are being sent links to training courses on how to embrace diversity, says Ardle. They included LGBT Plus 101, a beginner's guide to trans 101. Are you serious, Ardle? Are people really putting up with that? Being told you have to have courses, you must submit yourself to a course at your company to learn how to be inclusive to LGBT people. Haven't we been inclusive? Haven't we included LGBT people forever? Well, not forever, but for years. Haven't we just ignored them because we don't care what it is they say they are or about their identity? It doesn't matter to us. All that matters is if you are tolerable. (laughs) What do we think about the people we work with? We either like them or we don't like them. And it never has anything to do with their sexuality. They're either nice people that you get on with, or they're not. Is there ever any in between? I don't think there is when it comes to that. Yeah, I like you. I like Paul. Yeah, he's all right, Paul. Yeah. Mary. Yeah, Mary's all right. That that Ryan, though, a bit of an agent, isn't he? Yeah, best um, avoided, really. People don't care. But we're being told all of the time, every day, every hour, that we do care. And not only do we care, but we are we are bigoted in our behaviour. We use microaggressions towards people, you know, from certain so-called communities. All of it is nonsense. Carol Nolan, the independent TD, that's right, she's, she said it herself clear. Uh, Burn, I wasn't privy to any of this yesterday. But to reduce complex issues to binary choice, with us or against us, bigoted or good person or or responsible citizen, they, they, they seek to remove shades of grey, nuances basically kicked out the window. You know, it's not okay to say, well, hang on a second now. Yeah, let's, let's, let's look after some Ukrainian refugees. Let's look after some refugees from, I don't know, Yemen. Yemen has been carpet bombed from the sky by Saudi Arabia for several years. And people are fleeing that lunacy. Let's see what we can do. But only where it doesn't impact on the prospects, the life prospects of people already living in Ireland. That's reasonable, it seems to me. But it's not, according to the media and the government. It's actually basically, it's, you know, it's... It's um, racism by another name, when of course it isn't. This is the Richie Allen Show. I'm live from Salford from BBG Towers. Oh, what a day, what a day, what a week we've had. 
Thank God for air conditioning. Who invented the aircon unit? Let's light a candle for that person. He, she, they, them, it, or whatever. Might have been a non-binary person. I've no idea. I'm really looking forward to connecting with my first guest, Diana Hamill-Page. She'll be with me in a couple of minutes' time after this song from Ace, a Garodo Culmon will be with me in hour two. I love this show. That is uh, music from Ace. How long? It's uh, 5.30. That's a UK time. Scorchio out there, 25 degrees. But a bit of relief is on the way. Thunderstorms, rain. Clouds are gathering. I read a couple of brilliant stories in the week in the uh, tabloids about my guest this hour. And I was really keen to extend her an invitation to come on. I'm really glad she has done um, she's based, uh, well, she's originally from North Yorkshire and runs a company now called the Wild Harvest School where she teaches people, as many as 60 people a week, how to become fully self-reliant, how to do things like make toiletries from natural ingredients, how to forage, um, how to do things for yourself, the sorts of things that maybe we've forgotten uh, to do. She spent um, the best part of five years living off-grid with her children, living out of a caravan, teaching them to forage, to preserve fruit, uh, to use an air rifle and to survive in nature. I'm delighted to welcome to the programme Diana Hamill-Page. How are you doing, Diana? Welcome. Hello and thank you. You're very kind. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. I know you're busy. Tell me this, has there, before we talk about yourself and how you got into this, has there been an uptake or, I don't know, an upsurge in, in the interest among people for learning the skills that you are teaching? I'm thinking because of, you know, the COVID pandemic and everything that's going on in the world, is there more interest now than, than ever before? Um, well, we were fully booked before pandemic, but we did find that every time there was a lockdown release, you know, when people could come out again, we couldn't list courses fast enough and they were filling. So I think it, that's kind of exa- uh, exacerbated this interest. But I do think it's been emerging anyway, to be honest, because of the Internet. You know, people do have an awareness now of things that are going on in the world. So I think it was already happening. So it was already happening. So you said because of the Internet and people are more aware of what's going on in the world. So does, does that mean that people, Diana, are increasingly becoming more concerned about the way the world is going and that they think that they might need to have these skills because I don't know of some maybe economic collapse in the future or I think you've spoken before about even a power grid collapse. Is, is that the sort of things people are thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. People kind of have, have mocked some of the headlines. Some of the headlines have chosen to say, oh, you know, a woman teaching people to survive the apocalypse. I'm not. You know, it's kind of about thriving in a power-down situation and it's become it being as you know, as prepared as you can for, for less resources, um, basically, yes. So Yeah, the, the tabloids do what the tabloids do, don't they? They, they put <laughs> shock, shocking headlines on. So, so, so this began for you when you took your children. Your, your children are all grown up now, Matthias, Noah and, and uh, Maya. They're grown yeah. up. What possessed you at the time to say, um, it's, it's quite a good few years ago now, I believe, Diana. What possessed you to say, right, we're, we're going totally off-grid. You three are going to learn how to take care of yourselves. What happened at that time? Well, I think I made that decision when, my first, when I was even pregnant with my first. I'd already made the decision that I wanted us to become as self-reliant as possible because I'd had an unusual upbringing anyway with very little. You know, lots was made um, or kind of 
um, it was made or grown. And then you, you move away from that. But then when I had my own kids, um, yeah, I just thought, I just looked around in the world and I was already reading a lot about permaculture um, and was aware that of potential power down situations in the future. And that coupled with being pregnant, I just thought, yeah, I really need to kind of reach back to the simplicity that I was raised with. And they also just kind of learn more and future proof us. It's about future proofing yourself, isn't it? As best you can. Can we talk about some of those experiences in the caravan just in a minute? But I'm fascinated by your own childhood because it sounds like it was a very exciting childhood. Tell us about your parents and what what led them even to, you know, to, you said you lived with, you didn't have very much in terms of material stuff. You learned to make things and to be self-sufficient. Why were your parents, um, I don't know, why were they thinking like that? Uh, well, I was actually raised mostly by my granddad and my dad, but uh, my dad worked a lot um, and was at uni. And he was a, a kind of hippie scientist, so his simplicity came from his hippie values. You know, he, he once wanted to live on a kibbutz, that was his dream. And so as, as close as he could get to that in a semi-detached house, you know, growing his own mung beans and yogurt and soap and you know, he learned to, he fixed his own car, built his own conservatory. He'd just read about things and do them. You know, it's quite inspiring that... You know, he, he could just, he just, if he needed it, he would try and solve it in-house, basically. And then my granddad's simplicity came from the fact he was a war man. You know, they, they weren't used to having lots. So he would do kind of sewing and baking. And, yeah, so it was a combination of those two. One was the hippie view, and one was the kind of thrift of the war view. So... What an amazing story that is to be raised by your dad and your granddad and, and, and then to teach you all these things. And, and this thing that you're, 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 they built a conservatory. I mean, this, it, it doesn't embarrass me so much, Diana, as it kind of amazes me. I, I live in Salford in a house and when anything needs to be done, I hire a man or a woman that can do it. Because yeah, I well can't that, that, that's exactly where, when I was pregnant with my daughter and started start going to toddler group, I looked around and I just thought everybody is seeking external resources for yeah. their, their problems. Nobody can deal with anything in-house anymore, whether it's emotional, educational, food, heat, every single thing, every resource, every need is bought in. Um, and yeah, that, that was kind of my exact issue. So it's better to be, it's better to kind of learn lots of different things you know, rather than be a, a master of one, but to just right. kind of get as many different... You don't have to be an expert builder or an expert mechanic or, you know, an expert gardener. Expert, as long as you've got a real broad, you know, that, that's the best thing, really. Because if you think about nature, for example, monocrops are very, very vulnerable. You know, they get one insect plague or one, one disease, whereas nature operates in diversity, and it should be the same. You know, you don't have to be an expert in anything just get a lot of different skills under your belt I get you now I'm a 47 year old guy who genuinely can't do anything which is kind of strange because in my family history um, there have been tradesmen and skilled um, artistic type people you think and feel free now to properly have a go at me here I don't mind but, <laughs> but, but as a 47 year old guy you would see me then as being at a bit of a disadvantage wouldn't you what, like not an alpha male yeah, well, well, <laughs> in the tribe? Yeah. Um, and to be honest, it's normal. The research shows that men today are more likely to have changed a nappy than even a car tyre, a car wheel, sorry. Right. So that, that's normal, yeah. 
Well, hang on now. I, I, I can say I have successfully changed a punctured car tyre in the past. Took me ages to do it, but I did, but I did do it. But those oh, other you, skills. There you go. But those other Practice. skills. Now, right. tell us about m- moving into the caravan with the children. I mean, I, I, I presume dad and granddad would have approved of it, but I suppose others might have thought she's, she's lost the plot completely. Give us a, a kind of a, a feeling of what that was like, living like that. I mean, did you enjoy it? Did the kids enjoy it? Oh, yes, absolutely loved it. Uh, it was very lonely at times, and sometimes when the weather was really bad and like the caravan was rocking, <laughs> right. it was a bit scary, or if it was lightning. Um, but, yeah, we really, really liked it. Um, and with regards to what people thought, I kind of didn't really care because yeah. not coming from a big family, I didn't really have that, you know, the voices over my shoulder saying, what are you doing, what are you doing kind of thing. So um, I wasn't really worried about what people... And I'd, I'd already decluttered the house. I'd got rid of virtually everything in it anyway at that point because I teach permaculture and um, basically every element of the, your design, so whether that's life or your lounge or your garden, should have two purposes. And I just looked around the house and I just thought, you know, we've got a lot of single-use items. Not single-use, but, you know, that can only perform one function, like a cheese press that can only make hard cheese. So I just got rid of everything that, you know, a toaster that can only toast. I thought, well, we've got a, a fire. So, yeah, so I basically got rid of everything. And then I thought, well, I don't need the house now. <laughs> I don't need the house, and off you went in the caravan. And yeah. at any stage, did the, did the children say, Mom, come on, enough of this now. You know, we've had a year of it. We've learned how to preserve fruit. We've learned how to gather wood. We've learned how to grow food. Look, we've had enough now. Let's get back to society. At any stage, were they like, come on, Mom? I think if we'd come from, um, you know, a busy town where they'd had a normal life, but because... Their life was always very rural and you know, not that much into popular culture anyway. It wasn't really a great transition, so they didn't know what to miss because they'd never had it. You know, It's like at Christmas, they never really knew what to ask for at Christmas because we didn't have the t- TV telling them what they needed. Nice. We weren't in a mainstream school. We didn't get leaflets through the door because nobody really came to the door, You know, telling them like with toy catalogues. So they didn't know what to miss and they just lived in that moment. And yeah, they really enjoyed it. And I know you don't care what people think, and I do believe that, by the way. But you yeah. must, before you moved to the caravan, you must have been a bit of an oddity in the, in the neighbourhood, I would imagine. Or did, did you find that neighbours were, were like, I could learn something from Diana? You know, she, I, I could pick some things up from her. Were, were some of your neighbours like that? Well, where I was, it was the um, Dale of Farndale, and it, a lot of the houses there are rented by people who go to the Steiner School anyway. So, right. uh, you know, we're very similar in that, you know, the kids didn't, didn't have TV in most houses in that, in that Dale. So we weren't that different from the others. But, yeah, we kind of went a few steps. <laughs> yeah. And if, I think that does fascinate me, and it does sometimes come up on this programme, is so when you decide to do that, what about interference from like local authorities and stuff? Did you have any of that? You know, did you have people coming to the caravan checking up on the well-being of the children, or you know, did people leave you alone to educate them and to take care of them yourself? Yeah, I mean, they did go. I, I did some med, uh, home ed, but on the whole, they they went part time to the local Steiner school, so we were in a school system. Um, and with regards to living in a caravan, it's not illegal. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah, nobody had the right to kind of come and say, Absolutely. Oh, you know so. oh, I agree with that. But, but I, I've heard stories from people on this programme about how the, you know, the local authorities can be a little bit authoritarian, you know, sending health visitors around and demanding this and demanding that. So you didn't really have to put up no. with much of that. No, not at all. 
That's brilliant. Diana Hamill-Page is our guest. Um, she is uh, teaching... I've, I've got to give the website address because I know... I know Wildharvest.org. Fantastic. Wildharvest.org. Because our listeners are absolutely right bang into this, uh, Diana, let me tell you that. Uh, as many as 60 people a week are taught by Diana how to become self-reliant, self-sufficient. Now, after before we talk about the school, and we, we, we give a big plug to the school and what you're doing... Why, after five years, then, did you say, right, five years is enough? Yeah, it wasn't five. I, the, the media said five years. It wasn't up. It was maybe about three. Right. Um, I think the timelines got a bit distorted somewhere. But three, you know, it's still a, it's still a long time to live with no, nothing in a caravan. But, um, yeah, so just because the caravan had flooded, basically, the second caravan had flooded, and because um, one of the pipes had burst, a pipe had burst and flooded the caravan when we were away for a couple of days, came back, everything was sopping wet, and it never dried out. So the kids' mattresses got mouldy underneath, so I was having to like lift them and turn them every day. And at that point, the kids' dad was like, well, you know, I think you should move into a proper house now, so... <laughs> And that was but that. Yes. So, 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 so you moved in, and was that a bit of a shock then, kind of moving back into a house? Oh, do you know when you when you live with walls that are about a centimetre thick in the kind of wilds of the the moors, you you know what every bit of weather is like. So moving into bricks and mortar again, it felt strange going outside and not having had any idea of what the weather was like before I actually went outside. I can imagine. No ice, obviously ice on the windows, a normal thing on the inside for a lot of people, but we had like frozen water in the sink and things inside so we very you know we really felt the weather and like I say with it kind of blowing the caravan about and stuff but when I moved into a house I felt very separate from from nature very separate so I felt very guilty actually I felt like I'd given up yeah did you know and how and how and what about the children how did they react to going back to the house the the, the kids they kind of go go with they're just really centered you know I think they just Easy going, really. <laughs> yeah, nothing bothers them. Um, they yeah, must be amazing. I mean, they're according to the paper. The papers get so much wrong. But, but Maya is twenty three, Noah's twenty one, and Matthias is eighteen. And yeah. from from what from what we've been told, th- these three, they're not youngsters now. They're adults now. But you could drop them anywhere in the world, and they'd be okay. They'd be able to take care of themselves. Well, they're not exactly bare, mini bear grills or anything because I I respected my children's own journey. It wasn't about me forcing, you know. It yeah. was just it was how we lived, and that was the incidental way that I learned it from Dad and Pop. They didn't force me to do anything. We just made things like rabbit hutches together, or you know, Dad was making jam in the kitchen, and you know, so it was very incidental. So it wasn't like right where how, you know I did take them physically to lessons in things like horse riding lessons and then we bought a pony to break in ourselves you know I took them to air rifle lessons but nothing that they didn't want to do. Yeah. And before we talk about the school, uh, we've got about five minutes left. Thanks for coming on by really loving this conversation. Thanks, Diana. Before we talk about the school, um, the power down situation, we every now and then I will hear a meteorologist talking on 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 a sci-fi channel. Um, about, you know, the possibility of the power grid collapsing because of solar activity and, you know, it might not happen, but it's something that could conceivably happen. Is that, you know, is that something you still think about? Do you think, like, it it is feasible that in the near future we might have to go back to, I don't know, pre-industrial revolution times? Um, 
Well, yeah, and I kind of hope so. But um, I hope so. I I grew up in the 70s when there were lots of power cuts because of labour strikes and things. So it was kind of normal to have candles and a paraffin lamp. Um, So I do think that we might not be totally have a power down situation, but energy rationing could be something that's brought in. You know, we're way too consumer. You know, we we consume way too much. And, And our country has only about two days of domestic energy reserve, like gas reserves that in the coldest winter day you know that's all we've got of our own that <laughs> we kind of so you know if we're, we're very heavily dependent on all these kind of long chain supply networks so yeah um so I'll, i think power shortages well we're already seeing it aren't we with pricing of fuel which yeah. is kind of it's it's a fuel shortage in the sense that we can't afford it anymore so it might not disappear but it might be that we're priced out of it or we might have rationing um, and we are dumbed down by comfort, and it's going to feel very, very uncomfortable for a lot of people who are used to just flicking a light on and, you know, or whacking the heating up or driving everywhere um, because we're just not optimized now to survive because we are dumbed down by comfort. So I just, I, my thing is about, you know, building the currencies of the future now, and the main currency of the future is skills, and one of those skills is the ability to live with very little, and we just don't have that. Dumbed down by comfort. I mean, th- these are amazing phrases now. Um, that sets off a lot of images in my mind. And mm. the currency will be skills because skills will, will be valuable. We, ha- we have been dumbed down by comfort. And I think you might be even kind. We've become incredibly lazy in terms <laughs> of the things that we don't do for ourselves that we should do for ourselves. We yeah. drive, drive when we can walk. You know, that's, that's a in, very in basic. A way, in a way, though, I don't think it's our fault because we live in an economic situation with you know a macro there's macro factors at play here and the main one is the economy and, and people have to pay rent they have to pay mortgage and at the end of a 40-hour working week you know how much time is there to do all of these things yeah. is the big is the big thing so it's not people's fault but this is one tip i can give to free people up to do to get this skill acquisition it's that the average tv viewer watches 22 hours of tv a week that's a part-time job so, you know, we've never really had TV. We had it kind of for micro moments in our entire life. But there's so much, so many hours there uh, eaten up by watching TV. So that would be the first thing, you know. But it's not people's fault on the whole that we are dumbed down by comfort and lazy because we've got to work to pay our rent and mortgage. So. Is that system I- itself psychotic? We, we, I, I put this out on the show a few years back and I never had such a big response I, it's not my idea, of course. This is an idea that philosophers have had for, for, for many generations. But that we're the only species on the planet that we are compelled to go to work for another member of our species in order to be able to survive and to thrive. So you could make an argument that it's a psychotic system we, we live in. What do you, what yeah, do you think? I, d- I don't know though, because if you think about honeybees, you know, they just work, 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 and it's all for the good of the, the, the colony. For the queen, isn't it? yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair but, enough. Okay, you, you've you've shot that one down. Um, no, I'm a big believer in I'm a big believer in work. We've got a really strong work ethic in our house um, because one of the, my things about the children was making them capable so that they could contribute to society. That you know, I did not expect them to expect to be carried in any means. You know, I wanted them to be strong and capable so that they could contribute, be useful members of society. Really. Um, and what do you yeah. think now, just before we, we, we talk about Wild Harvest for the last couple of minutes that we have, now that they're adults now, do you think, I know you said earlier on that you didn't want to impose any philosophy on them, and I, I get that, 
of course, so I didn't I didn't misunderstand that. But um, are you proud of them now? Do you look at them and, and think they're they're ready now? They're ready yeah, to I always had this quiet expectation that if any if this shit hit the fan, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that you are. that that we would be able to come together as a family. And that, you know, quietly I was instilling the different skill sets that we would need as a family because it's nigh on impossible to be uh, self-reliant as an individual. You can't do everything from weaving your own clothes and shooting the intruders. But as a family, you've got a potential there to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, and obviously at community level, even more so. So it was kind of, I always had this quiet thing going on that, you know, I was introducing the skills between us that if we came together, you know, we would have sewing, we would have mechanics, we would have you know, defence, we would have growing and foraging. Um, yeah, that kind of idea, really. Brilliant. And are they all working now? Oh, yeah, they all work. Yeah. Amazing. Now, wildharvest.org. Um, folks, go on the website, check it out. Uh, <laughs> it's a brilliant website. It's, it's fantastic. It really is. It's brilliantly illustrated. It's very easy to, uh, to navigate. Um, I do all my own tech. I've built it myself. You built it yourself, <laughs> did you? Why am I not surprised to learn that? So you, you did all of that yourself. Well, it's, yeah. it's a bloody good job. You could have done my website for me. Um, I no, will. <laughs> my, 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 my web designer now, who is a very good friend of mine, if he's listening to this, he'll, he'll, he'll kill me later <laughs> on. So as many as 60 people a week and it's growing and they're yeah. learning these skills from you. This is absolutely amazing. And it's been going how long now, Wild Harvest? Uh, 17 years. So I've cut my teeth. We are the, probably the longest established kind of self-sufficiency school, but we're still the most affordable because it's my belief that this education shouldn't be elitist. Right. So, yeah, you get newer, you know, newer people are setting up teaching it and charging a lot of money, and I find that quite offensive. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and is there hope for, and I don't say this to be silly, like for a 47-year-old bloke like me who doesn't put wallpaper up, doesn't do any woodwork, is pretty useless, to be honest. You think a guy like me, you know, I'm very... I don't know, this thing about an old dog and new tricks, you think I could pick up, pick up some of these skills from someone like you? Absolutely. Well, it's about learning. It's about just maximising what you've got now, so optimising what you've got now. So little tiny increments. You know, every year you can learn a new skill or two new skills a year, and that's just, say, three years. You could have loads of different things under your belt. Tell you what, Diane, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you. Um, all the best uh, in the world with, I mean, you've been doing it 17 years with wildharvest.org. You're no doubt going to get a bit of traffic after this programme. Listen, I'm sure, you got oh. an, uh, I'm sure you got an avalanche of traffic after the stories in the mail and the Express and the other papers. But, uh, oh, yes, the mail, crucifixion by mail reader. <laughs> Did you see that? <laughs> I saw that, yeah. <laughs> No, but, you know, for all the, the problems with the content of the Daily Mail, um, it does do some decent stuff and putting out articles like that even if it got some of the facts wrong it's good because uh, I suppose people are I detect a lot of concern and a lot of worry in people because of what's gone on in the last you know few years and uh, it's nice to know that there are places where they can um, like learn new skills and speak to people who are equally you know as concerned about these things and worried about you know, future-proofing themselves. So, no, it's been absolutely brilliant, Diana. Um, don't be a stranger. It'd be nice to pick it up with you again sometime in the future. Thanks yeah, for coming absolutely. on today. Thank you. Lovely, Bye. lovely to meet you. Bye for now. Diana Hamilpage, wildharvest.org is the website. 17 years she's been teaching people how to become fully self-reliant. Lived for three years, she said. Not five, as they said in the press. Uh, so she did. Uh, Off-grid completely with her three children, foraging, preserving fruit, hunting, only what they needed. Amazing, really. 
I am brutal. It's not funny, really. You know, it's not funny. I was speaking to some friends recently about using sat-nav. And, and, and it's ridiculous because I managed to navigate the highways and byways of southern Spain, not speaking very much Spanish, not even pidgin Spanish. And there was no sat-nav in the old Mercedes I was driving, the old uh, 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 limousine I was driving. Back then, I just used the signs. And that's not what she's talking about. But again, it illustrates just how useless some of us have become. Now, go on, bore the absolute bejesus out of me, go on, by telling me that you're like Diana and you can do this and you can do that. Bore me. RichieAllen.co.uk It's RichieAllen.co.uk What if I got lined up? I'm scared, to be honest. I'm scared to press play because I think, I think I might have made a mistake. I've got the Fab Four, the Beatles, why not? Because McCartney has been in the news quite a bit this week. As he's headlining Glastonbury, one of the days, I, I don't know which day he's headlining, I couldn't really care can't less. Buy me love, love. The Beatles can't buy me love on the Richie Allen Show. Martin Noakes is listening. By the way, go to madmixconspiracies.co.uk if you can and find out how to pick up a copy of Mad Mix's latest single, which is uh, all about the monkeypox pandemic. It's called Monkeypox Plandemic or Monkeypox Bollocks. Uh, check it out, madmixconspiracies.co.uk. Martin Noakes, who produced the track, was on the programme with Mick the other evening. So go to madmixconspiracies.co.uk. Martin, I got your emails today and I was planning on replying to them later on. Uh, yes and yes are my answers. Thank you. Um, Martin has recommended some very interesting guests. So yes, mate. Thank you so much. Love Martin Noakes. Dave says, ask Diana why my wheat won't sprout. I'm trying to make sprouted wheat bread. If I had seen it, Dave. Isabel says, I love what Diane said about Diana getting rid of anything that has only got one function, like her toaster. That's the boyfriend gone then, says Isabel. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, Dean Smith says Diane is amazing I've already checked out the website I'm useful he says and can hunt but I'm still a baby in survival wonderful guest she says going to make contact that's Dean who runs a care home and is a good friend of mine and yours Richard says where is the dad I do believe that they parted company amicably when the children were young Uh, she said the dad when the caravan was going a bit you know tits up kind of a thing. Dad wanted the family to move back into more more modern more mod- modern quarters. Yes. And Banny says this, and Banny is right, you don't know what you can do unless you try. You might surprise yourself. I did woodwork at secondary school and I failed every, when I say I did it, I did it in first year of secondary school. At the end of the year you got you, you were presented with an option to drop it and do something else, like a language. And I did. I dropped it because I was useless. There was a nice teacher. He was called Finbar O'Connor. He was very stern, but he was nice. He had a big heart. And um, I, I was useless at it. Some people are gifted like that. I was useless at taking that joint of wood and marking it properly and cutting it and then planing it and making a garden dibber out of it. He was from Cork, actually, I think. Can you make a garden dibber? And I couldn't make a fucking garden dibber. So th- so if you didn't get a D or above, you couldn't take it home with you. By the way, a garden dibber, I've, said, I've told you this story before. A garden dibber, you use it to bore a hole in the ground 
where you will put bulbs, seeds, basically, I think, if memory serves. A garden diver, and I was useless at it. Putting up wallpaper, forget about it. It wouldn't be straight. That's the way of it, you know. Um, I was never any good at anything except talking. And that's debatable. That's subjective. You might think he's a decent presenter. You might think he's useless. That's a subjective thing. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm not practical in any way. Scully says, Richie, a great film along these lines is Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen. What a movie. What a film. Captain Fantastic about this man who has raised his children in the wilderness to teach them to be self-sufficient. It's a great film, Scully. In fact, one of the weekend, one weekend recently in the spring, the weather was diabolical. Uh, the missus was working. It was a Saturday because it was end of month. She was tying up the accounts for her company. And that film was on Sky and I watched it for the second time. Great great. Alex says it didn't take her long to want to impose her views and her way of life on others. I don't think she's imposing her views on anyone. Colin says I like this guest. I would have no problem living in an RV, a motorhome off-grid, free from the hassle of owning a home and trying to keep a roof over uh, my head. But it's easier said than done. Uh, I'm sure says Colin. That's what I think. Sounds idyllic, but it's easier said than done. You know, um, uh, the climate change stuff. Yeah, Martin says that I love her. I love Martin Oaks. I love Diana and her skills and teachings are important. But I feel she may have bought into the climate crisis. I'm not sure if she has or hasn't. And I didn't bring her on to confront her about the, the say it for me, the legitimacy or otherwise of climate change theory. So uh, that's why I didn't bring it up, really. Um, there's no point. You and I know that the climate change stuff is nonsense. Uh, Chris says, uh, Richie, just heard that the new IPPC report has stated the temperatures have not increased in the last 15 years. Is that right? Got to check that one out. Got to check that one out. Okay, time for another tune. When we come back, hopefully, Gerardo Colmon, great journalist, great writer. He's an Irishman in Paris. That's a good thing. Almost sounds like a novel or the title of an autobiography, An Irishman in Paris. This is Michelle Gale on The Richie Allen Show. Michelle Gale, sweetness on The Richie Allen Show, Thursday's programme. Lucy says it's easy to put up the wallpaper, Richie. I had no idea, but looked on YouTube and learned my wallpaper looks fab, says Lucy. <laughs> Brilliant, Lucy. Except everybody who comes into your house, they think like they're in an episode of Batman in the 1960s. Everything is slanted. Craig says, Richie, I was useless at all the practical lessons at school, but I've taught myself all those things and more for many years. It turns out that learning practical things is a regimented fashion for little identifiable reason. Doesn't work for me. But having a good reason and the freedom to explore is a great motivator. That's a very good point. Time is another thing, isn't it? Having the time and the energy. I put a lot of energy into my job. I don't mean the two hours of the on-air stuff, but just the rest of it, getting it together and all of that. Looking for no sympathy, mind. I'm just saying that's the way it is. So I'm generally cream-crackered. 
my neighbours are amused, or I don't know if they are amused, but I've spoken to them about it, about having a gardener come around. I have a gardener. I pay a gardener to cut the grass and to trim the privet, the privet hedge. Yeah, why don't you do it yourself? I've even got the, the thing, I bought the thing, the hedge trimmer, and I bought a lawnmower. I cut it one time myself and made a balls of it. So, um, and it's just too taxing when you're tired. So, uh, yeah, I have a gardener. People find that funny. Oh, you don't do it for yourself. And it's, actually, it's quite good that people find that funny because it means that, that the starting point for most people, at least the people I know, the starting point is to do it for themselves. They're more likely to. Why just get somebody in? Why not? Anywho, David says, fiercely independent-minded. I've already a highly productive allotment. I'm taking the house off-grid this year through various alternative energy and water heating diversification measures, says David. Solar panels, battery bank and inverter. Together, he says, with a multi-fuel thermal store pressurised cylinder. Jesus, David, this is blowing my mind. He says, it's going to be a considerable outlay financially, but I'm betting the future cost of energy is only going in one direction for me, down, and it's going to go up for everyone else, he says. I look forward to getting off of that racket. Uh, good post, David. Thank you. Uh, Angela, how are you doing, Angela? Richie, I can paint and draw. Don't think that'll help much, he says. Jokes aside, I am quite practical in reality. Thank you, Angela, for that. Hi to Frankie, who says that we listen every night to the Richie Allen Show. Please send happy birthday wishes to my husband, Rich. Rich, happy birthday. And that's coming from Frankie, your beloved. Thanks for listening every night. That warms the cockles of me heart. Really appreciate that. Sure, what else would you be listening to? Lots. There's lots of other things you could be listening to, but you choose to listen to the BBG. Oh, Kido, Gerardo Colmon should be standing by in Paris uh, to speak with me in a couple of minutes' time. It's hot. It's damn hot. I'm going to take some agua sin gas. I, I did learn. I did learn a few Spanish words and phrases. Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis Jr., The Candyman, 12 minutes past six, Thursday's programme, the 23rd of June, 2022. You can read Garodo Colmon on English, Al Mayadeen. I'll put links out, I always do, later on. Uh, very proud of him. He's a great Irish writer living in Paris with his family, broadcaster as well. Always has uh, a unique perspective on geopolitical affairs. He sees the things that most others don't see. He sees the patterns. Let's welcome him back. Garot, it must be hot there because it's hot here. How are you? Hi, Richie. Yeah, it's very, very hot here, actually. Yeah. Muggy and humid. It's stink here in Salford. It's not that built up here, but it's bloody stink. Uh, thanks for coming back on. Love your company. We'll talk about the fallout from the French election and Emmanuel Macron losing his majority there, what that means. We'll talk a bit about Rwanda. But, you know, we, we hear about the winter of discontent 1979 and we're seeing here in the UK absolute chaos. Um, rail workers going on strike and as a trade unionist, to my bone marrow, I understand why they're going on strike and I support it. We're hearing about strikes at Heathrow Airport in the summer. We're, we're hearing about strikes everywhere else in the NHS. It's chaos. It's agitating people. And I wonder how much of this chaos 
is organised chaos. How much of it is deliberate and how much of it is just um, by the boy. It's stuff that just happens. Um, I'm leaning towards we're being manipulated, we're being angered deliberately to make us more malleable. The more fearful we are, the easier we are to control. Am I a crazy conspiracy theorist or is there some uh, pattern in all of this chaos this summer? Well, I think the, the strikes seem to be one of the problems with the strikes and it has been a problem in recent years in France as well, is that they tend to target the working class and the middle class. I mean, the people who suffer most in French strikes, and that's been it's been like that for a very long time, are ordinary people trying to get to work who have to, you know, spend, may have to do a massive detour to get to work and, uh, you know, add two or three hours to their day for several weeks. The elites don't give a damn about strikes unless the strike is organized and targeted against the Great Reset, against against the New World Order agenda, and it's specifically targeting, let's say, you know, if workers are on strike because they refuse to get vaccinated, you know, that's yeah. something that could bring the system to a halt. Um, pay strikes, of course, are, you know, necessary. If people are being underpaid, as people are. Um, but they have ne- they've ceased to be an effective uh, form of protest, I think. Because the unions, certainly here in France, the unions are run by the bosses. You know, they're run by the agents of the ruling class. And so, you know, the interesting thing about syndicalism in capitalist societies is that uh, it's actually what the rulers want. You know, um, as one case, uh, give an example in Spain. Uh, you know, there, there was a, a union in, there was a corporation called the Mondragon Corporation, which is a co-op, world's most successful cooperative, which, is, which was set up in the 19, uh, started in, in the Franco era after the war. And um, it's kind of ironically it was, you know, I think I've mentioned this before, it was uh, supported by the, the anarchists and, and by Catholic right wing, the fascists, in other words. So it's a it's a unique story of uh, something that uh, Franco supported, but you'll actually find uh, you know left wingers supporting it as well. But uh, because it was based on Catholic social doctrine, so it was uh, it was a democratic uh, democratically run business, which was based on providing uh, a living wage to working people and their families, and it's been a huge success ever since. But uh, when that model was being dismantled by neoliberalism in the 19, 1970s, kind of started in Spain, even during the Franco era, towards the end of the Franco era, when these sort of pro-American technocrats took over in Spain, um, the, uh, the ruling class wanted class struggle back. They wanted unions with uh, labor leaders. They didn't want this sort of uh, class collaboration model that uh, Franco had kind of favoured because uh, they couldn't basically uh, drive down wages with that. Right. No, so it's like kind of ironic that the system we have with labour leaders and labour parties and left-wing parties is exactly what the rulers want, you know, because they can, they can influence them and, and manipulate them all they want. And I mean, I think we kind of seen the proof of that in the last couple of years. What labor leaders, leaders who have some kind of weight in the labor movement, have actually spoken out about the Great Reset? Well said. What not, labor not leaders have opposed the Lockdowns. Great Reset? Yeah, nothing. nothing. I mean, we, it's, it's astonishing. You know, that so, and it would be so easy to do, and it's so obvious. You know, it's so obvious that, uh, 
so so strikes strikes we're seeing um in britain and in we haven't we don't have them here right now but i'm sure we'll we'll have them back we had them you know right last couple of years generally i would say they're you know unless they're directed against that unless they're directed against the great reset with a with a set of objectives of bringing the country to a halt to get rid of the Boris Johnson regime, yeah, uh, they, they're they're probably, as you say, orchestrated to target the working class. You Isn't know, it amazing, Garod? Isn't it amazing, Garodo Colmon is there is our guest. What a brilliant point you made there about lockdowns. I mean, failing to stand up to lockdowns and failing to stand up to people being compelled to stay at home and not to go to work that has advanced the great reset agenda in terms of it's it's advanced the automation aspect of it it's expedited hasn't it um the the encroachment of automation on jobs we're seeing that here in this country obviously with the railways where they want automated everything automated ticket um offices automated trains uh, themselves and i wonder how much of this you know when schwab says you'll you'll, you'll be happy with nothing I wonder how important automation is in that. I made the point on the show the other evening. The financial services industry is huge in the UK, but it's about to collapse. Um, now, I don't mean next week or next month, but um, the things that, like my, my partner is an accountant, the things that, that she does, moving money around for big corporations um, skillfully, all of that stuff is going to be obsolete in a few years. They've already got the programmes that can do all of that. So you're going to have millions of people with no job um, because of automation and lockdown. And I think the failure of unions to stand up to lockdowns has actually inadvertently or advertently has expedited that. What do you think of that? It, it, it is because they're, they're, the, the whole philosophy is, uh, is, is wrong. This is the whole problem. They, they don't understand how, how the world works. They don't understand that there is a global oligarchy. I mean, um, and that these people own most of the world. Anybody who's done any research now knows that. Um, and obviously, they're plants. I mean, the, most of the people running, and as I say, the leadership of these unions are government plants. That's it's clearly the case here. And it's it's the case in every in every country. Look at Ireland. Look at all those left wing parties, those Trotskyites and socialists. They're they're all the same. I mean, here in France, to come back to the legislative elections, you have a situation now where you've kind of got a tripartite division of the country. Um, Macron is in the centre, and then you've got the so called left and the so called right. So you've got Marine Le Pen um, with the Rassemblement National, and then you've got the Union. The left-wing parties sort of form this union to try and form, you know, a coherent uh, bloc. Uh, but Mélenchon is kind of the key leader on on, on the so-called left, and um, Mélenchon is a member of the same lodge, the same Masonic lodge as uh, as Macron, and uh, he's been caught in flagrante delicto. I don't know how many times, you know, uh, texting Macron, kind of saying what, you know, more or less, what will I do next, or I did this, now you do that. Uh, he's been seen talking to him very friendly, uh, contradicting himself about. I mean, he's clearly there as the best possible opposition that Macron could hope for, because his job and his role as the left, so-called, is to um, be an opposition which actually drives the agenda forward. So, you know, the next major thing is the climate change lockdown. Yes. You know, so we need to start uh we need to lock down everybody and try to economize our breathing 
make sure we don't fart in case we heat up yeah, the planet, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so the whole kind of nonsense of climate is now being pushed. And we have these uh, these these not you know, these nutty youth groups like Extinction Rebellion and so on, blocking roads now in Paris. You know, people can't get to work because these crazy youths are blocking the uh, the, the streets. Um, you know, this is all the this is the woke opposite. You know, you have the, the the left and the right of of wokeism now. You have Macron, which is sort of center wokeism, uh, sort of wokeism which just you know doesn't doesn't uh, even pay lip service to uh, any kind of critique of the ruling class. That's Macron's wokeism. Uh, Mélenchon's wokeism is just you know I'm against Macron, but it's even more woke. It's it's yeah. just absolutely it's just crazy wokeism. You know. You could and be describing. It, you could be. You could be describing the British paradigm because what you're describing there is the dynamic between the Conservative Party and Labour. It's actually smack on. You have Johnson doing the Macron role, and um, Starmer basically doing the other guy. Starmer will take it even further than Johnson, given the chance. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 you know, the three big, the, I call it the, 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 the left, the contemporary left trinity uh, of issues is mass immigration, climate change and sex change. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they don't they don't talk about um, the conflict between labor and capital anymore, whereas that was kind of paradigm in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, let's say. But on, when the sort of wokest cultural Marxist agenda really took off in the 1960s, it has now become these these three things, anti-racism, i.e. mass immigrationism, uh, sex changeism, and climate changeism. So it's just sort of this, this, this you know, this, evolu this constant change um, and this, this agenda of, of, of destroying society, essentially. But they, they, you know, they, the situation here now is, you know, on the right then, on the so-called right, Marine Le Pen, the extreme right, far right or whatever. Again, Marine Le Pen, to be plausible, uh, has had to sort of centralize, professionalize the party. And she doesn't oppose, I mean, she's probably more of an opponent in the sense that, you know, anyone who gets bad press gets bad press for a good reason. You know, and um, but nonetheless, in terms of vaccines, in terms of uh, actually opposing, you know, the New World Order, the, uh, the Great Reset, uh, she's been incredibly weak as well. And her party is, again, incredibly cynical. And it's a bit like a lot of these kind of right wing populist parties. They sort of promise a lot, but they don't deliver. Um, yeah. And they they don't, you know, but the, in terms of sort of demographics, uh, Le Pen would definitely has the working class vote uh not that she rep she objectively represents their interests but she uh you know they, there's more common sense uh from 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 that side but it, the question is it is is it sort of common sense in the sense of co controlled opposition because somebody's going to have to make sense you know like not everybody's crazy in our society so what you're seeing really with the rise of the far right parties is they're sort of monopolizing the the people they're monopolizing the vote of people who still have basic common sense. I'm not saying they represent the objective interests of those people, because I, I doubt it very much. I mean, look at Viktor Orban in Hungary. He says a lot of things that are true, and 
uh, and so on. But you know, look at the guy's vaccinated the whole country. Yeah, you, know? you see. And this is yeah. a guy who was threatening to put people. This guy was even worse than, you know, than Boris Johnson on vaccines. You know, um, so like, people got to kind of wake up to that. Similarly with Trump, I mean, we've spoken about him a lot. You know, it's, I, I would just, you know, I'm, I'm still waiting for this great plan of Trump to, to unfold, but I, I just don't see it happening, you know? No, I, I back in, at, sorry, If you look sorry, at what he said on vaccines and yeah. everything, I think it's kind of like, well, if, if Trump's followers really were, you know, believe Trump and, and were doing what he said, then the guy's responsible for mass murder, you know? Um, so, I mean, yes, I, 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 you know, I think, but having said that, you know, it's kind of, the the the, um, the the populist right is sort of getting the vote of common sense, but uh, whether they are actually whether it might know, be a trap. If they were in power, it would be any different. I don't know. Yeah, it might be a trap. Yeah, I mean that's what I believe, and I I have to obviously preface everything I say honestly with, it is my opinion. That's all. I've believed it since around about twenty twenty ten twenty eleven. That ultimately the opposition, the, 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 the system, the agenda provides its own opposition. It presents its own opposition to the people. And that's what I believe, whether I'm right or wrong. I want to play you something. It's only going to take a few seconds. You might be aware of this, but it's fairly recent um, developing story, really. It's about the monkeypox virus. Have a listen to this. You're listening to Gerardo Colmon, by the way, Irish journalist and broadcaster in Paris. Love having him on. Um, listen to this. This is Sky News at 10 to 4 today. You should be able to hear it nice and, and clearly. If I've got it there. Have I got it there? I have. I should have it. OK, here we go. Simon, thanks very much indeed. Now, the World Health Organization has convened an emergency meeting to decide whether to declare monkeypox an emergency of international concern. That's its highest form of alert. Well, Sky's Sabah Chowdhury is here for us. So uh, this feels like quite an important moment. Good afternoon, Anna. Yeah, it absolutely is. So this is the first time that the World Health Organization have met to discuss the severity uh, of monkeypox, monkeypox and whether it should be considered uh, a global health emergency, what they call uh, an emergency of international concern. Right, Karo, did you hear that? You did. Did you hear that this afternoon? They're meeting today. They will announce tomorrow whether monkeypox is an emergency of global concern. Mm. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, there. I mean, monkeypox. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard to be serious. Just even Isn't the fact it? that we have to even use this kind of. Yeah. We have to talk about this, but it's. Uh, it, it's. You know, um, here they're talking about bringing back a lockdown uh, or bringing back masks and uh, restrictions for the you know, COVID. They're still talking about COVID right here now, um, because obviously everybody who's getting sick. And, um, you know, there's a huge problem with that. I mean, I don't know how Be many cases I've heard. Because of the jabs? People, because of the jabs, yeah, yeah. People with three and four jabs. And they're just sick all the time. And so they're getting what, what they're calling, you know, long COVID. I mean, they're basically just either, either really, really ill or dying. And so, um, and of course, it's, you know, now there's a big, there's a new wave of that. And so each time it's a new, they're just, they call it new variant or whatever. Um, but the, you know, with, will Macron be able to lock down here? Will he be able to reintroduce the vaccine pass? Um, you know, some people are saying that because there is a kind of a, a very, you know, he's, he has been weakened by the legislative elections. There's no doubt about that. His credibility has gone. 
He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have a majority. He's had, to, you know, he's lost uh, all his pawns, the people he was using, the people around him. There's, there is a big sh- kind of reshuffle going on. And so there is a lot of unpredictability there. Uh, there will be some very strong deputies in Rassemblement National and, and even in Mélenchon's side. Um, having said that, in Mélenchon's side, just today, and this is just typical in parenthesis, I'll just say it and come back to your question of monkeypox, but just today it came out in the French press that uh, the deputy leaders, um, the two former spokespersons, uh, the woman and a the man, they're actually a wife, a husband and wife, um, they, there was a big scandal about them because they were um, they were caught uh, exploiting a I think it was a Philippine uh, woman who was their housemaid, you know. And this is kind of typical of what the left is, you know. Yeah. This is the kind of stuff like the whole pro-immigration is about cheap labor, paying people nothing. Absolutely. And they got caught basically, and not only that, but they got caught texting her, and um, the texts were revealed in the French press. And uh, this, like, it, the haughtiness is just unbelievable. This poor woman was getting paid like 150 euro a week. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, th- she was she's begging him, right? They're, they published a text where um, she's like, oh, madame, you know, can I have my money, please? And she responds like just like something out of a, you know, an arist- a film about the aristocracy. She's like, um, she says, you know, Monsieur, you know, your, in other words, my husband, who she, whom she refers to as Monsieur, which is extreme, be like, you know, saying, Sir will pay you. Right. She says, you know, Monsieur will pay you. Um, and then when she complains, she says, you know, don't complain. You're, you know, we're giving you bread and board, and if you don't, if you don't shut up, I'll get someone else. You know, so I, th- this is very representative of the left. You know, that is for me what the kind of people they are and the kind of interest they and the the arrogance and the absolute contempt for the working class that they have um but that's just another you know another thing that came out today um nobody's uh, there might be a doubt about the text so some people saying there could be a doubt but it, it did come out in the mainstream press and uh, they are the number two uh to uh, in 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 Mélenchon's party but to come back to uh, what you were asking about monkeypox, and yeah, I mean, I think here there will be difficulty locking down for Macron due to the fact that he 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 will get more opposition probably from the right. He certainly, you know, he there are some deputies in Mélenchon's party who might uh, also oppose it because the thing about it is is that people are suffering so much, particularly in the uh, in the hospitals here. All of the staff were fired. That it's just. It's it's getting out of control for not you know, having the he, job. Girl, any party that supports that's going to lose complete credibility. You know. Sorry to interrupt there. The staff that were fired because they refused to have the job. Yeah. Right. Well, that that's happening a lot here. With what has happened uh, in the hospitals. So now you now have a situation where you have you know uh, they can't cope in the hospitals because they're getting all the vaccinated in who are um, dying and who are uh, extremely sick. And they don't have enough nurses and doctors right. to uh, to to take care of them. And they're calling so, these now, they're calling these new COVID deaths, are they? Yeah, of course. Everything yeah. is just it's whatever COVID, monkeypox, whatever. whatever new rubbish they'll make up. But Polio, the thing about it is, yeah. interestingly, and kind of on a positive note here, just today um, there was a letter sent by a top sociologist in CNRS, which is one of the top 
university institutes in 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 France, and um, you know he wrote a letter to the government. Essentially, they have a government commission, an official you know commission that is investigating the side effects of the vaccines. So there is an ongoing official government investigation uh, into the side effects of the vaccines. And uh, the problem is they won't release any of the data. It's being done uh, behind closed doors. And uh, nobody is, uh, so all the researchers, all the academics in the country are trying to get access to the data to see what is being said, and they won't allow them access to the data. It's incredible. Has, has any reason so, been given for that, Gerard? Sorry? Has, has anyone given a reason for the lack of transparency? No. And this is, uh, this is why um, a letter was sent now, the letter uh, was sent by a French sociologist, but uh, it was signed by, it must have been hundreds because I read, I read the letter today and I could not get, I could not, you know, scroll down to the end of the list. It was right. so long. It, it, it seemed like there was literally hundreds of universities, uh, you know, um, think tanks, uh, you name it. Um, really, like it was incredible just the, the amount of professors and doctors and researchers and in right across the board in academia who signed this um letter of protest so you know there is a lot you know in the intelligentsia here it's a lot of people who know what's going on so you know you just don't see it obviously in the media i mean you look at ireland we have an awful lot of uh, we probably have a lot more academics in the know in Ireland as well, we're not saying anything. No doubt. But we have, we only have these buffoons, um, you know, allowed on the media. People like Luke O'Neill, you know, um, Morons, who's been yeah. caught lying, <laughs> you know, over and over again. But um, so here, here it's similar. But the, you know, it was a kind of positive note. Well, I was impressed just by the the uh, the, the length of the list of uh, of academics who were. Um, saying enough is enough with what's going on. So obviously, you know, people, I would say people are waking up, you know, that an awful lot of people who have had two doses, three doses, don't want any more, you know. So um, I think it's my, not going to be easy for them to, to just, you know, unless they can completely change the narrative and take it up a gear, you know. My, um, you know, my partner is French. I don't think she'll mind me saying this. Her, her mum had a couple of doses. And then she's had um, a little bit of, um, um, she's had an issue in, in her chest, in her kind of heart area. And it's been a bit scary. Uh, it's going to be okay. But, but, but just as you said, she's definitely not going to have any more of them, which, which, yeah. which, is, which is a positive thing. Let, let's stay with Ireland for a moment. Look how quick the time goes when we chat. It's uh, 24 minutes to 7 o'clock here in the UK. It's 24 minutes to 8 o'clock in uh, Paris, in Paris, where Giraud is. Stay with Ireland, um, very interesting thing happened yesterday afternoon. An Irish listener sent me some interesting audio. A um, couple of Irish TDs yesterday, you know, said to uh, government ministers, listen, some of our constituents are a bit worried about the plans to keep taking Ukrainian refugees because the cost of living crisis, because of housing and all of that. Now, you won't be one bit surprised to learn that they were immediately accused of xenophobia just for bringing it up like. Mm. So this, this made RTE Radio this morning, the Claire Bourne show, and you had a Fianna Fáil politician on with a guy called Matty McGrath, who's an independent from Tipperary. And mm. McGrath made the point, like, you know, to, to the Fianna Fáil guy, you're running the country into the ground. It's you doing it, um, you know, causing the problems. 
And yet when people ask about, you know, is it the wisest thing in the world now to exacerbate the problems by taking in large amounts of refugees, you're, you're equating those people to, uh, to racism. Now, that's not new. So that's not groundbreaking news. The problem is, though, it appears to me that's a tactic that works. It seems to scare the bejesus out of people who are asking a legitimate question. Why are we... Why are we not just taking the amount that we can afford to take? Why don't we just take a few thousand only if we can? Why do we have to take 30,000 or 40,000? The tactic works. Once you bring in xenophobia, they shut up very quickly, don't they? Yeah, I think people have just got to stop. You know, we've got a kind of uh, phobia phobia. We've got to stop fearing being called some kind of a phobe. You know, this is just um, this is just a misuse of language and it's a form of bullying. To call someone a foe because you might because you know you might have legitimate uh, reasons to fear anything and um, if you're expressing concerns it means you do have a fear and so there's nothing wrong with uh, with a fear whether it is of any group or or anything so I think we got to, people just got to get over phobia this idea of you're this phobe and a that phobe um, just on to kind of widen the you know the, the widen the discussion on or on immigration um, you know, we were. Um, I've just written an article on 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 the British government um, Rwanda uh, saga. That's uh, you know sort of making the press a lot, and it's it's an unusual. It's sort of yeah, it seems to be an unusual kind of turn by the British government, and um, it's trying to find out what really is going on there. You know, but um, it's you know the point I made in my piece was that um, population transfer, you know, it's, it's, it's a key, it's, this is a key agenda of the new world order. You know, it's kind of ironic in the moment when you hear about the, the airports, you know, they're, they're, they're going on strike. So it means that, you know, the kind of the working class family who wants to go to Spain on holidays or whatever, the kind of things they could do in the last 20 years. And, you know, it was one of the good, things about that happened in the last 20 years is that you know low-cost airlines did enable working class people to have things like holidays foreign holidays it would have been impossible for for uh people uh, for working class people certainly in the 1960s and 70s you know irish people didn't go abroad on holidays even in my day i'm sure in your day as well you know what <laughs> foreign holidays were unheard of yeah, unheard of yeah. so um you know now they're kind of people do when they go you know so they, it's kind of ironic. The British government are, you know, they they've created a situation now where the low cost airlines are breaking down, and you know we're being told not to fly, of course, and they they want they don't want people flying again. I mean, they're just going to make it impossible for people to fly. I think, um, but then at the same time, they can just sort of get planes and stick refugees in them or migrants, whatever, and just like, you know, dump them in the middle of Central Africa. Um, now, why exactly is this happening? You know, obviously. The British government, uh, which has a pro-immigration agenda for their whole, you know, uh, their whole, you know, the purpose the of, lifespan of, of, destroying, of, yeah. of destroying Britain yeah. and and uh, and turning people into slaves. They're not trying to stop immigration. So why why are they, you know, coming up with this kind of uh, very controversial and unpopular move? It's almost surprising. And then you have this so-called conflict between, you know, Prince Charles and and Boris Johnson, Johnson. That's right. Chris Charles being the good guy who really cares, and, you know, embarrassed. And you've got the Commonwealth meeting happening in Kigali. So there's something going on here. And it seems there's, first of all, a geopolitical move by 
Britain to uh, revive the Commonwealth. Um, that is one aspect of all this. Rwanda is a key aspect of uh, the British strategy in Africa. Um, so that's one aspect. The second aspect is what I just mentioned, just just you know, shoving people, just transferring people around the world like cattle, you know, uh, preventing our people from traveling, but then just you know, getting other migrants and putting them here and putting them there, and just this deployment of manpower. Uh, that's another agenda. Now, just to, just to elaborate slightly on what I'm talking about there with Rwanda, why is Rwanda important for the Brit for the British uh, geopolitical strategy? Uh, because the leader of Rwanda, Paul Kagame was is a, is a creation of Anglo-American intelligence. He was formed by the CIA in Fort Leavenworth in the United States, and he was, uh, he was in exile in Uganda. He started invading uh, Rwanda from 1990 to 1994. And in 1994, he invaded with, uh, with the backing of the US, the British and the Israelis, and he had full military support from the Anglo-American uh, alliance. And he uh, assassinated the president of Burundi and the president of um, the president of uh, um, the Hutu president of Rwanda, two presidents in in a um, basically in a plane in a plane plane crash, which was brought down by Kagame's men uh, in 1994, 4th of April 1994. And that uh, assassination was pretty much covered up by the West, but it was Kagame, the West man, who caused it. And that assassination is what led to the uh, Rwandan genocide. And the Rwandan genocide was not what people think it was. There was obviously a mass killing estimates or something like 800,000 or up to a million. Um, but it, the, the, it was Kagame's troops that started the violence and it was Kagame's troops who were doing most of the killing. And the, the most of the people killed were Hutus, Tutsis and Twas, which is they're the main ethnic groups there. Now it, again, it's Western ignorance and again, particularly the ignorance of so-called leftists who, you know, who talk about racism, never uh, read African media, never actually listen to African no. <laughs> journalists, writers, intellectuals, yeah. uh, never read books from an African perspective, but, um, you know, preach to people and pontificate about, about racism. But to come back to Kagame, once he got power, the Hollywood machine set in and they sort of... Uh, brought out all films to, to cement the, uh, the myth that he stopped the genocide. And so what his job, essentially, what Clinton and Blair wanted him to do was to take over the country, get the French influence out of Central Africa. It had been a former Belgian colony. So Belgians, the French, the, Francos, the Francophone sphere uh, was displaced. And he, he basically, once he took over, once he got power in um, in Kigali in in Rwanda, he uh, implemented a English only policy. So he's actually changed the language of the country. It's now an English speaking country, even though you know it's been very difficult for people to to, to transition to English. But he basically turned the country into a, uh, a an orbit of a hub of Anglo American Israeli power in Central Africa. And now the reason Rwanda is important is because they, the, the, the British and the Americans used Rwanda as a pivot to destabilize the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so in 1996, shortly after uh, the, the end of the genocide, he invaded the Congo with US and British backing. And they've been pillaging, his men have been pillaging 
eastern Congo ever since. And the key uh, resource thereafter in eastern Congo is coltan, which right. is one of the most important minerals in the world for high tech. For tech. So the That's key. Right. So this is a. In other words, to make a long story short, Paul Kagame is a key actor in the Great Reset Agenda. He is a member of the World Economic Forum. He is um, a key, uh, you know, um, uh, piece in the, uh, in, in the jigsaw of getting the actual resources for, for high tech and so on. And a lot of the major corporations are moving to Rwanda. Uh, he's done an awful lot to um, sort of market the country as, you know, this, this powerful emerging country. There is a lot of money there in Rwanda because they basically are exporting all these um, pillaged um, minerals and you know coltan and gold and jewels and so on from from the eastern Congo, but they you know he's responsible for millions and millions of of deaths. This is one of the most brutal leaders in modern history. And you know, just to finish on 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 this topic, um, he's kind of leader that the World Health Organization likes. You know, um, one of uh, the policies in Rwanda. Uh, this was reported by German state media, by the way. Uh, Deutsche Welle reported this in January. One of the policies there was to go around in order to vaccinate people was to send uh, police into people's houses, handcuff them and forcibly vaccinate them. So this is, you know, this is kind of what the World, Eco the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization and Tony Blair, who's a close friend of this guy, um, consider, you know, as a model for the developing world. And so, um, you know, it's kind of, this is, these are their friends. These are the kind of people uh, they, they admire. And, you know, the, these are the kind of leaders they want in the third world. And of course, you know, in right. So right now, as they're talking about refugees and migrants being sent back to or being sent to Rwanda, um, you have actually refugees. You have people fleeing Rwanda from forced vaccination, you know. And I say that was reported by Deutsche Welle in January of this year. And people fleeing the Congo. And well. people fleeing the Congo. And in fact, yeah. just as this is happening, as the Commonwealth uh, talks are going on there in Kigali and all of this is sort of coming together, uh, he has um, restarted the war in Eastern Congo. The groups that Kagame is backing have uh, restarted the war in Eastern Congo. And again, it's just about getting the Chinese. The Chinese pretty much are running you know, the Congo. They've, they've, they've got huge projects in Kinshasa. Uh, huge infrastructure projects all over Africa. So it really is just a tug of war between the West and, and China for control of those resources. You'll never hear a word of it on BBC no. News 24 and, and or Sky problem. News. No, people never yeah. hear a word of it, no. so they don't know what they're talking about when they even talk about race. You know, I mean, they, in other words, they they talk about Tutsis and Hutus and they haven't a clue what they're talking about. They don't know the history of these countries. No, they get you it know? from the Guardian, don't they? Usually, but they get it from the Guardian exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, from the Guardian. <laughs> they get it from Owen Jones and the Guardian. I mean, that's almost vaudevillian, that. Getting information on what's happening in Central and Eastern Africa from Owen Jones and the Guardian or some other cretin. Um, Gerardo Colmon is our guest. I meant to ask you about the article because um, you said that you were posting it and I always mentioned Al Mayadeen. Is it on there? Is it up on the website? No, it's not on yet, but it should be up fairly soon. All uh, right, Jake. I'll, yeah. I'll put a link to it when it is. We've only got about three minutes left today. Um, brilliant, brilliant having you back. I mean that. I'm not a sycophant. I mean it. Um, your, your take on it. Look, talking about that, the, 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 for me, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not as familiar 
with what happened in um, Rwanda and in Congo, as you are. I, I, I know what, what, what I get from the Irish Times and, and from the Times here is bullshit. And, and I knew a bit about Kagami and what sort of a monster um, he is. But I don't have that insight um, that you have. And uh, you're right, people just don't get it. They haven't a clue. They haven't a clue. And I suppose you mentioned now the, the, the industrial um, development in Rwanda. Well, there's a nice cheap influx of labour right there now, right? Going in there. Well, Pfizer are moving there. Pfizer yeah. are just are just are building a major plant there already. So you know these these globalist corporations are looking at countries like that because obviously, remember Tony Blair is very close to Kagame and he's involved in all kinds of shady business interests there. If you look up, if you type in Google Telegraph, you look at the Telegraph, the British press. You know they have admitted uh, several on several occasions that Tony Blair's activities in uh, Africa are very murky and secretive and nobody, you know, nobody's allowed to really know what he's up to, you know. Um, and this is a guy, you know, this is a war criminal who was knighted recently. Lady. I mean, these are, these are guys who, you know, kind of say, says all you need to know about Tony Blair. But um, And the Queen. I mean, I don't know exactly how much sway the Queen has in choosing the honours to go on the honours list, I don't know. I, I think the Queen's a very dark entity and um, her, her dead husband, very dark entity. But but I don't know about who chooses these. But how could any, you know, I would say legitimate human being, somebody with a conscience, with any moral um, outlook on life, give such an award to a guy who murdered a million people and displaced millions more? It is, it's, I have to pinch myself sometimes to realise I'm awake, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we could go on. That's another topic, the royal family. I mean, you know, Prince Charles and, you know, and he and, and, and Andrew and his, uh, and, and, you know, that's another thing, the exploitation, sexual exploitation and, uh, you know, the paedophilia. And, Do you want to pick it up next know? time? Because I'll tell you what, that's something I talk about from time to time. And I know it's an area of interest uh, of yours. That's something we should pick up next time we speak. If it's in, yeah, July. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, obviously, all these things are linked, you know, and there's a there's a pattern in, in, in these things, but it's all about, you know, turning people into slaves ultimately. Ultimately, but uh, you know, these 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 elites. I mean, what's kind of astonishes me is that, you know, most of the stuff has kind of been more or less revealed in the mainstream press. I mean, you, you notice that yourself, probably. You know, you read. Yeah. The Daily Mail and it's kind of all there, really. Like most of the most of our information actually comes from the mainstream press. You know, it's not as if we're um, making stuff up. It's just it's actually there. It's just getting people sort of teaching people how to read the mainstream press because it's you know a lot of it. A lot of stuff is just revealed, but it's just people. There's a sort of um, there's a, a narrative trajectory that kind of prevents people from interpreting the information. It's like, but a lot of what we're talking about is kind of in your face. It's almost—it's already been admitted, you know. Which is very frustrating, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's just like they don't, you know, there's that sort of memory hole aspect of the whole thing. And, and people, they don't, you know, presenters don't sort of go back and say, hey, didn't we already, just, you know, yeah. kind of, didn't yeah. we already cover the story? I mean, yeah. how many times, like the British, the BBC have pretty much told you everything I've just said about Kigami. They, you know, one of the, now, one of the reasons they're doing that is, I think is what I call you know the Saddam Hussein factor, which is that when you've got a dictator working for you, make sure that you have enough cards to blackmail him with, in case he gets out of hand. Because Kagame is kind of a powerful guy, and 
he may just decide, you know, in the morning to go to China, you know, and kind of say good luck and to the West. Yeah. If it gets too big for his boots, he might start buying Russian weapons. So they have to keep these guys on board. And the way they do that is just sort of saying, well, we know what you did. And we might just, we might start revealing that, you know. So that's kind of how they deal with these, uh, with these guys. When we speak next time, let's talk um, royal families, banking families, and uh, the interrelationships between these families and pedophilia because it's hugely important. Folks, you should go to Al Mayadeen. I'll put a link on the podcast notes uh, to read Garod, great writer, great Irishman, proud to know him. Um, so all I'll say today is, as usual, Gurav Mila Mahogod, August, Sloan Thomas. Thanks, Garod. Love having Paul you. Garod. Bye, Rebe. Bye Sloan for Thomas. now, mate. Bye, bye for now. Uh, Garodo Colmon, Al Mayadeen, English. Read him, check him out. Irish journalist, writer, broadcaster based in Paris. We're nearly out of time today. It's uh, six minutes to the top of the hour and six minutes only. Thanks for all your comments during that. Yeah, Kagami and Rwanda. That's right. The Tutsis and the Hutus. You'll remember hearing that stuff on the news and not having a clue. I mean, I would have been in that category. Not a clue. Uh, Richard says, very interesting that Billy says, and just like that, Garrod died in a Parisian tunnel. Don't say that, Billy. Uh, my friend Patricia says, Richie, I don't want you to think that I haven't tried to post a comment. For some reason I can't or I get awaiting approval. Do you know what that is, Patricia? There, there's a WordPress. We, we use WordPress for the website. And this is a WordPress setting. And I don't know my way around it. And I don't have Hayden uh, to my beck and call. For obvious reasons, he's got his own life and his own job. But um, I swear to God, there are, nobody's comments are being held back. Really, honestly. So I forgive me for that. I don't know what's going on there. But uh, I might go in, if I get the time later on manually, and just block approve, just block approve every comment in there. So apologies. It is frustrating. I invite you to comment. I say to you, please comment and tell me stuff. And then you do. And sometimes it doesn't post. And uh, so that's not good. So I, I'll, I'll try and do something about that to make it better. Thank you for that. Jenny says big corporations in Congo were very involved in creating the civil war so they could pillage all the resources in the green government when it was still genuinely about the environment. We campaigned about Colton. They chopped down a lot of forests in Africa to get at this mineral. Yes, they did, Jenny. Absolutely. But again, you will never read about that in the Guardian newspaper. Well, you won't read about it in the Telegraph either, let alone read about it in the Guardian. Craig asks, if we live in a global world where borders don't matter, why are the woke opposed to people being settled in Rwanda? That's a good question. <laughs> and Patricia tells me she was posting a quote about Henry James, uh, or excuse me, a quote of or from Henry James three times, and uh, she receives an awaiting approval message. I, I'd love to know why, why that's happening. Just trust me, I'll try and get to the bottom of it. I'll ask Hayden to have a look at it for me. He's very busy directing films at the moment as Hayden. And um, I'm, not much use, I'm not much use for anything. You've heard me acknowledge this earlier on, uh, speaking with the lovely Diana. So uh, I'll struggle, but I'll do, I'll do my best. Listen, thank you for listening. Thanks to Diana Hamill-Page. What a great guest she was earlier on. Wonderful. Uh, thanks to her for coming on. And as usual to Gerardo Colmon, um, Al Mayadeen in English, read him there. We will speak again on Sunday morning. Some of us will speak again when I uh, 
Join up with you for Sunday Morning Melodies, which broadcasts at 10 o'clock. It's a live programme, 10 o'clock UK time, Sunday morning. It's music and chat. That's all it is for two blissful, relaxing hours on Sunday mornings. And this is the sort of thing you do here, you know. This sort of thing. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Look after yourselves and one another. See you Sunday. Sloan Gafol. Sloan Tunnel.